In this episode, Catherine Burkett, CFO at GoCardless, shares her experience of being thrown in the deep end as a first-time CFO, underlines the importance of building diverse teams, and describes how her intuition helped GoCardless navigate the pandemic. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Catherine, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, I'm very glad to be here. So Catherine, I'd love to start by learning about your experience prior to GoCardless. So obviously your CFO at GoCardless, but beforehand you had risen through the ranks and gone all the way from being leading FP&A right through to being promoted to CFO at, in your own words at an early age and then leading the company through an incredible scale acquisitions and, and a huge amount of growth. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and what it was like to go from your initial role going all the way through to leading the organization at such vast scale? I had always been relatively ambitious and driven. I enjoyed my time at KPMG, where I was prior to joining Interview, but knew that probably I was more suited to working within a business rather than necessarily being actually sort of on within public practice. So we moved down to London at that time and I joined Interroot and I went for the role because I loved financial modelling. Actually, I'm a bit of an Excel geek uh, at heart. Clearly, things have moved on hugely today because I'm talking 20 odd years ago, but I, I've got a master's degree. So sort of doing financial modelling was just something kind of I loved and enjoyed. So I realised that an FP and a role would be good. And I was really lucky at Interroot because when I joined Interroot, it was just as basically commencing on a build of a very big and significant fibre optic network all around Europe. And at the time, there was two parts of the business. And I kind of joined the part that was effectively involved in this new startup, which was a huge startup, but ultimately was building a big telecoms network. And it was a very small team, actually, that ran that part of the business. So when I joined, I think I was something like employee number 25 or 26. There was an FD or CFO in place. And I was one of the direct reports into them heading up the FP&A. There was somebody who did sort of financial control. And the reason that's all relevant and why then kind of the, how the move to CFO happened is really because I was just thrown into the deep end from day one. So I joined in through as a 28-year-old who basically knew nothing at all about telecoms. I'd come from a very traditional sort of northern background where when I was at, Le- at KPMG in Leeds, most of my auditing experience was with more traditional manufacturers, et cetera, distribution businesses, not really thinking about the tech side because that really hadn't, you know, sort of hit, hit sort of the Leeds area as much as certainly at that stage. So I came down just as the dot-com boom was all happening, et cetera, as well, down to London and joined into and. I was literally, as I said, just thrown completely in a deep end. And I was being asked to go negotiate on banking arrangements that we got in place to fund the build with Alcatel, who were a big telecoms network equipment provider, but also did construction work at the time. I was going out to Paris. I was sort of basically speaking to all sorts of people around the business. I was very close to the then exec team that existed because the, the startup was sort of a subsidiary at the time. So I got myself basically very well known in the sort of initial what I would start call crazy sort of first year that I had at Interview where I was just learning loads, writing a business plan. So that's one of the best ways, you know, and I'd advise anybody who's really sort of aspiring towards CFOs, you know, being involved in planning and actually getting to understand how a business really works is so, so useful and vital, you know, for you to sort of carry on and progress through your career. I could see this place and this business was crazy. 
money was being spent like there was no tomorrow. It was just being thrown into this huge build of the network. Even though there were signs that the telecoms world was starting to look not so great, it was still, you know, the backers of Interview decided to continue sort of plowing money in. So basically what happened was at the beginning of 2001, some sense was brought into the business. And I mean that in this, you know, with no disrespect to anybody that was there prior to that, but we had um, two American guys whose background had been a lot of entrepreneurial stuff, some uh, Microsoft experience and kind of knew our shareholders. And they were brought in to really try and assess actually how on earth you're going to make this asset into a business because it was becoming very clear that all was happening was an awful lot of money was being spent and, and there was no revenue. And the reason why, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time, I do genuinely and I always have sort of believed that, is they needed somebody to run numbers for this very small group that was kind of taken out of the business to work out what on earth we're going to do. And I was the most obvious candidate to do that. So I went into these meetings, you know, and I remember being called in, you know, just after Christmas. This would have been at the start of 2001, is that right, or two? Start of 2002. Basically brought in and asked to kind of like work out numbers and all very sensitive because we were talking about quite significant change. But what that meant is I got just huge exposure to lots of people that ultimately became the management team of of the, the new interview that was reborn after receivership. So that was a huge challenging year as well. And I did loads of learning about how receivership works. We actually went in and out of administration because it was the only way that we could get sort of a sensible balance sheet structure for the business going forward. We sold part of the business. So we sold the voice business that effectively was loss making. And we saw that was not the future. So that was a a voice minutes trading business, which would seem, I'm sure, alien to most people who, who exist today. The business existed doing that. But I was part of this kind of interview the new interview that was going to go forward. But to be honest, it genuinely looked like the whole thing was going to collapse. You know, back at at the end of 2002, we were like literally a week away from the whole thing and the network going completely dark. And you could, you can almost never recover it if a network goes completely dark. But at the end hour, a deal was done between the shareholders of interview Sandoz who backed the business the whole way through and also Alcatel who had had this debt sort of a facility in the business. And that just gave me a new opportunity. So Intuit was reborn in, in the beginning of 2003. I was then heading up FP&A. We were a bigger business by then. We were starting to sell. We actually got a network that worked. You know, it was actually lit. It was actually, you know, sort of operating. And we started to build a business. So at the time, there was a CFO in place who had been there prior as well. So it sort of lived through the, the receivership and structure. But I don't think he was ever, to be honest, very interested in, in a long-term role. I think, he, you know, he just... He'd been too scared by the whole experience, I think, frankly. And it probably wasn't the right person for the role either. So I did a year sort of working for him, his number two. But I was, again, very exposed to the exec teams that were in place then because I was just doing, I was in lots and lots of meetings and, and everybody knew me. So he left in November 2004. So that's sort of a year, just over 18 months after we'd relaunched the business. And I was asked to take the CFO role on. Honestly, at the time, the way I, way I approached it was I knew I was really young because I, I was 31. So I clearly was very young. And I, and I kind of knew I didn't have the experience, but was probably a little bit arrogant at the time to think I could I could just do it all. I was worried about two things. I was worried, honestly, because I'm, you know, I said this is 20, nearly 20 years ago, just under. But I was worried about being a female. I was worried about being, you know, blonde, frankly, and also being northern, you know, comprehensively educated and kind of was still having my northern accent and whether actually that 
I would not have the gravitas because I knew one of the first things I was doing was going out and raising funding because we needed it. Like, so basically the situation was the existing shareholders said, we're happy to continue backing you, but we need a partner. So we need somebody else to put some money in. So my first year in the role was all about fundraising. So I was a little bit worried about kind of, you know, the gravitas and being able to command sort of a meeting room or a boardroom. The reality is actually that that really never proved itself to be much of a problem. But I was really naive that I thought running the finance team, that'll be easy. That'll be straightforward. Won't be a problem doing that because I understand it all. So it'll be fine. I had got no idea, frankly. And, you know, so my first year was great because we successfully did raise money. We raised, you know, and got a biz- the business that was losing a lot of money to be valued still at a sort of a reasonable amount at that point in time. And we got into, you know, we raised 150 million of equity, which was enough to kind of then sort of drive us forward and mostly enough to take us to profitability. So that sort of funding was sorted. But it did mean that first year I didn't really get to grips with the role as a CFO because I was just out speaking to potential investors and that's all I was doing. It then came as these new investors came in, they brought a level of a sort of bit more of a, a level of governance to the board. Uh, it was Dubai Holdings. They at the time were investing in lots of different businesses. So I got kind of a pretty sort of standard way of structuring the way that they wanted to sort of deal with their investments. So one of the things they did was ask us to change auditors away from Robson Rhodes or RSM to a big four firm in PwC. And the reason I state that is because I then had, I would say, two and a half years probably of the most difficult and challenging sort of period of my whole career. Because what happened was I then would raise the money. We also went and acquired another business that was about kind of a third of the size so it was quite a material acquisition for, the, for what we were and I had an audit you know and a, a deadlines to complete the audit as soon as we got into the audit and as I soon as I started to understand what was really going on within the finance team that I'd inherited it was just a complete mess and it was completely shambles I'd been sort of on the side of all this because I'd been doing the kind of FP&A bit and I've got a couple of good people working for me who Kind of, we were, we knew what we were doing, but basically the core accounting was just all over the place. And um, that first year audit took us around about kind of nearly a full year to do with PwC, and literally every day, it was so stressful because we needed to get the accounts done. You know, there was so much uncertainty kind of around the business. We then bought this business as well, which then added complications to it, and I necessarily hadn't thought through how you're going to integrate it. Along with that business came somebody who sort of came in to supposedly to help me, who was the old FD of the business we acquired. In truth, he was just after my job. So I also had to deal with that. And it was just really, really hard. And I know now today that I kind of am the person and the CFO I am because of a lot of what I went through in that time. I had to unfortunately let, you know, somebody who was at the time a very close personal friend as well as the, the financial controller. I just knew that she wasn't right for the role and what we needed going forward. And so unfortunately, I had to let her go. So that was super difficult thing to go through at a personal level as well as, as professionally. But I knew I had to do the right thing professionally. So there was just lots going on. And the one thing I would say to anybody being thrown into that level of deep end at the level of experience that I had, which was frankly not enough, if I'm being, being really honest on it in reflection, I should have really made sure I'd got a better team in place right from day one. And I didn't realise that at the time. So I am sure if I'd have pushed for it, I probably would have got it, but I didn't have the maturity to do it. And that really made my my life so hard for that for that first uh, sort of two to three years after the initial sort of euphoria of raising the funding. But, you know, I learned. And I remember to this day sort of having a moment of clarity 
And actually that moment of clarity took me practically almost resigning from the role. I got to a point where I just felt I can't do this. I really, I'm overwhelmed. There's too much going on. I can't see the wood from the trees. I just, I just don't want to do it. And I pretty much told the CEO that I was leaving. And he just said, just Catherine, just take a step back. We've put you in a very difficult situation. You know, this business was going bankrupt. You know, we asked you to take this on without the experience or the support. Just take a step back and think about this and, and you know, and take some time. So he gave me the summer before they did anything to sort of proactively try and find somebody else. And I was in a rush to leave in the sense that I hadn't got another job or anything like that because I just wasn't even thinking that far ahead. And it was really strange because I can still remember to this day, suddenly having that sort of step back, I suddenly realised what I needed to do and realised the things I needed to change to be able to do the job. And I think what you learn from that is it's so important that you get that time to think. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people are put in similar situations to me in the startup world. You know, I think in a sense, I'll come on to GoCardus later, but GoCardus sort of did it maybe in some ways the right way around, but a lot of businesses don't do that because, you know, they went down the route of not really having anybody in finance, just somebody to keep things ticking over and then bring a CFO in who's experienced later down the line. And actually maybe that is the right way because I think sometimes you try and promote somebody into a CFO, which definitely happened with me. And, you know, yes, I'm so grateful that I got the opportunity because actually the timing in the end worked out amazingly well for me. But, oh my God, that first three years was super tough and so stressful and you know I do know for sure I'd have probably been a lot better at it had I done another two or three years before I got I sort of I got promoted but the change was you know the change from being somebody who was brilliant at the analysis side and was so well respected to really sort of thinking I can't do this I'm almost failing dealing with that was also so really was probably the hardest thing to do and it took me a long time to be honest to build to feel completely confident in myself that I was actually a very, very capable CFO and, you know, many, many years. And I'll probably honestly, you know, the true realisation of that was as what I'm actually doing at GoCardo was because it's kind of become clear to me that, okay, I wasn't just looking into it. I didn't just do it once. You know, I'm, I'm sort of repeating a lot of the successes that I had there. And I think that's probably been for me that, you know, has made me really feel, yeah, okay, you know, I do know what I'm doing and I, I can see it and it, it but it's experience and I can't tell you how, how much important experience is really. It sounds as if you've gone through in that period like some really dark and challenging times you know there's the challenging nature of the role there's going beyond your previous remit there's the idea of going from someone who's really high performing to someone who you or at least you felt as if you weren't performing and it wasn't as if that this was over a short period of time that this was years like you, as you described it as two or three years so what kept you going through those those really dark and challenging times, even before you got to the realisation you wanted to, or you were considering resigning? Yes, I think that that considering resigning sort of happened in the middle. So I still had some chat a bit. I still definitely have some challenging times afterwards because we still didn't get everything completely sorted for about another 18 months to two. But that point did help me feel better about what I was doing, for sure. Because I then I think in my own head, I decided, okay, I really don't want to leave. You know, I mean, I loved interview with, you know, a passion I can't, you know, sort of describe to you. I had an amazing 18 years at interview with people who I absolutely loved working with day in, day out. I'm having an incredible time at Girl Callous as well. So I've considered myself to be incredibly lucky that I've been very happy in two, you know, in two workplaces. But I think really I've always had a drive. It, it's very hard for me to explain why frankly because you know my background doesn't necessarily kind of you know dictate this is what I would have gone on and done 
but I had the drive as a an 11 year old child or as a you know a 16 year old teenager in a very northern comprehensive school where people just didn't go to university I had this thing that pushed me onto something else and I think you know that ultimately is what kept me going and I suppose although I had moments where I doubted myself I think I probably also knew that I was probably pretty good at a lot of the stuff that mattered to being a CFO. And what I actually realized over that sort of two to three years was what was really important was I found somebody or people within my team that complemented my weaknesses. Because there was stuff I'd always known that were my weaknesses. You know, I'm actually bizarrely, you know, I think you'd find, that, you know, many CFOs probably are missing to this today. I am actually not brilliant at attention to detail. It's one of my, you know, biggest weaknesses. You know, I have always been a, been able to step back, see big picture. I can look at I can look at numbers, and I can see an error in numbers because I can just spot it. But actually, if you ask me to check a document to make sure every number cross cast in a in a you know, and that's the stuff where I'm not brilliant at, and I definitely can be prone to making careless mistakes. I've got I got better because I got better at self checking things, but I, in my early career, I was definitely prone to that. And also, the technical side of accounting is actually not my strength. And frankly, I don't think it's the strength of many, many very, very excellent CFOs because the roles of the CFO over my career, so over that sort of, you know, 20 years or whatever, has basically become to be much more strategic focused, much more commercially focused. You are the person who's helping to drive the business to be successful. You know, you are the one that is supporting the CEO, enabling them to have the, the sort of the data to make the decisions they need to make. And also to be kind of the sounding board because, you're not so operational as, say, your head of sales or your head of ops or whatever it is. And so you're just able to be a bit more of that step back. And I think, you know, you become an advisor really to the CEO. That's always how I sort of feel that the CFO role needs to be. So that sort of strategic vision is actually quite different from being a very strong technical accounting sort of expert. And so what I realized and the reason why I got through that period is I managed to then hire somebody who was a brilliant support to me. Uh, somebody who was 10 years older than me, but who never once was after my job. He was happy to kind of support me and everything. He did cover my maternity leave because I then went on to have um, my two daughters. So I had sort of a couple of breaks from the role. And, and he was just, he covered that in a very respectful way. And I came back, uh, and after I'd had my second daughter, I came back and he was happy then to move on and leave the business because the business, we didn't need somebody of his experience anymore because we'd got so much uh, structure built in. But getting him involved and getting him to do the a lot of the heavy lifting and thinking around the more technical side of the role and making sure that all of our subsidiaries have got their accounts filed and so you know things like that that just isn't honestly my core strength. That was you know a major transformational sort of change in in my own success. And I say it today, at least you know seventy five percent, eighty percent of what I have achieved is because I've been able to build an amazing team behind me. And I would not have had the success without the team I've got either had at Interroot or, or, you know, some of them came and, you know, some of my guys are still with me at Golcala, so have worked with me for 10 to 15 years. So they are amazing and I am only successful because of them in truth. I find that piece about accounting very interesting because you'd come from an FP&A background, more of a, an analytical, a planning background. We had a previous guest use a phrase where he said that he saw accounting as the, the bedrock of finance, you know, so you build on top of it. And for you as well, when you're saying like, like the attention to detail and accounting wasn't your core competence, 
But the irony is, of course, that ended up being your greatest challenge in those two or three years when you became CFO. Has that experience adjusted the way that you approach the building of a finance organization and the way that you manage those accounting responsibilities? Yes, definitely. And I definitely, that was the thing I underestimated when I first took the took the role on. I mean, look, I've always, <laughs> I, I understood debit and credits from the first moment somebody explained it to me. So, you know, this was when I was auditing, obviously, rather than being sort of in-house. And that I do think is a huge advantage. And I, I try, I'm a strong believer in having, you know, you do your accountancy exams because that teaches you something that is is absolutely fundamental because as you've said, it's it's that building blocks. But I think I just kind of what I hadn't got the experience so much of because of the, my route up through FP&A was sort of all around sort of getting, make sure you've got the right processes in place and making sure that you actually are, the people are doing what you assume they're doing. I, I actually made too many assumptions in that first year had I really dug and realised that we weren't making selling balance sheets properly and we weren't doing X, Y, and Z, I would definitely have realised I've got a problem. You know, it was interesting. The PL was right. It was the balance sheet that was wrong. So we ended up not actually having to make any material change to the statements, but, you know, particularly around the sort of, you know, the actual PL. But there were so many things that were a problem in the way that we were controlling and, and sort of processing transactions through the business. So that was a massive learning. And that, yeah, clearly, I mean, one of the things when I took my role at, at GoCalus, I said was, look, I need to bring my guy who does my sort of financial control now and did it then because I need that. I need somebody I trust in that role and somebody who I know is the absolute expert in things I am not. So it's absolutely right. You you do need that. But I still do believe that the most successful CFOs are the ones who are able to move on from that car accounting and actually just think a lot more strategically and a lot more about what the right commercial decision is for the business and not sort of just purely somebody who says no. I always teach my team that we are a service to the best of the business. We actually need to try and say yes to most things. We say no when we know that there's something either, you know, it's a bad deal, it's a not profitable deal, or somebody's wanting to do something that's, you know, really not right. Or there are reasons when you need to say no. But we also we should be trying to support the business in the top line revenue growth. And we therefore should be thinking about our customers. We should be thinking about what's best for sales and, you know, and, and sort of having that attitude as well as controlling spend. You know, you still have to do that part. And that part is, is super important. But it's that balance between, you know, sort of spend and, and making sure you've got investment in the right places to allow you to grow the business if you're in a growth environment, you know, it's probably different in fairness if you're a mature business, which is just ticking over. But when you're trying to grow a business, you've got to be that that balancing out between kind of like, you know, keeping control of costs, but ensuring you've got enough investment to grow the top line is, is one of the more challenging things that you have to do. But that you definitely need to be more commercial and strategically focused and thinking about forecasting and thinking about your forward looking numbers. You know, the thing about car accounting is it's historic. So it's about the past. Actually, the biggest part of a CFO's job is about the future. Because you are you are thinking, where is this business going? Where am I taking it to? What's my you know revenue like? What's my profit or my loss, depending what stage you're in? And it's all about the future. The past is the past. And yes, you need to be able to analyze historic performance sometimes, you know, if you go through DD or whatever. But it's, it really is all about thinking about the future. So with that in mind on the future, so you mentioned there the importance of controlling spend and the fact that forecasting should be the, ma- the majority of your time is like trying to predict the future. There was a fascinating article where you were interviewed in uh, and sifted and it was at the height of the pandemic. I think it was April, right about the late April, at the point at which like nobody knew what was going on in the world. And of course, your responsibility was to try and forecast into that. 
And you also mentioned as well, it was a welcome chance to to introduce spend controls. So can you talk a little bit about actually what that experience was like again as a CFO, to your point that was really should be really focused on trying to predict the future, advise the CEO, and then facing an event that no one had ever been through in our lifetimes and was almost unpredictable. How did you tackle that? So I think firstly, and this I really do feel for people that are, you know, CFOs, FDs that were in this in the role at the start of COVID without experience, because the one reason why I think I was able to advise Hiroki and help the rest of the management team, but also keep a very kind of level head throughout it all was because I had lived through crises before. Yes, it's not the same as a global pandemic, but I did live through, you know, a telecoms crash that nearly bankrupted the business. I did live through as practically running out of money on several occasions at the start of Interroot, sort of rebirth, there were a number of occasions where we got very close to the edge. I did live through the financial crisis in 2007-8, which, you know, again, not sure how that was all going to pan out. So the fact I'd managed through some of these things meant that, you know, I wasn't panicking. And, you know, I'm not saying that, I, but I'm sure there were people who would, because I'm, frankly, had I been in that situation, you know, 20 years ago, I'm sure I would not have dealt with it at that same level of maturity that I did this time around. And for me, it was always about, we were quite a lucky position because we had got cash on the balance sheet. So I wasn't sitting there looking at my, my sort of future and thinking I'm imminently going to run out of money. I could see that we could sort of stop increasing spend quite easily. I ran several scenarios at the top end, uh, on the top line of what we thought the top line would do. We ended up basically outperforming the best of those. It, you know, interestingly, our business proves to be incredibly resilient. But I would not have sat here in April 2020 and said that that was going to happen. So it was good that that happened, but it was very hard to, to predict that at the time. So we very much worked to a much more downside scenario. But the one thing that I think I was instrumental in helping guide us towards and actually in a very, very sort of, you know, interesting and discussion we had with our board at sort of as we were making our plans and decisions was I felt quite strongly. I had an instinct, actually, to say that I didn't, I wouldn't necessarily have said we'd have come out as, as we would have performed as well as we did through COVID. But I probably had an instinct we were going to be OK because we had got such a diverse merchant base or customer base. You know, we were, we did our exposure, but it's not like we had 100% of our revenue coming from travel or anything like that. So I felt that we probably were going to be OK. And I also could see an opportunity as you came out the other side. And so, you know, we took the view to the board and also the board supported us that rather than actually reducing staff numbers, which we could have done, we actually decided instead to ask the whole of the employee base to take a pay cut. The way I explained that to everybody is it gave us breathing space because it just meant I, I could got, you know, two or three months where my cost base was reduced and I could see how we were coming through the other side of the pandemic, you know, how we were coming, potentially our revenue was going to behave and how we would come out the other side. I think that decision I made because I was brave enough to make that decision, even though, of course, we could have, you know, it could have backfired and we could have ended up with too many people on the our employee base, et cetera. But I think the reason I was able to make that decision is because, I could see these different scenarios and I could see ways I could manage myself through them all. And therefore, you know, I was a very strong voice on, on that bar discussion supporting Hiroki in saying, look, we really don't want to pull back so badly that we can't restart again once we get hopefully through this. And it was 100% the right decision because we actually started hiring again in September. So, you know, the, the pay cuts were reversed in October, you know, so it was a very kind of like, you know, it was 100% the right decision. But the only way I felt confident in doing that was by having lots of different forecast models 
which gave me, you know, sort of different scenarios. And yeah, none of them were 100% right, but at a very stand-back kind of level, I could see my way I was going to manage through it. I think secondly as well, the other thing that I did and pushed on was, was making sure we had additional cash on the balance sheet. So I spoke with SVB, who are our bank, and we put a facility in place. We didn't actually really need to have done that, but it just meant, again, I got more headroom because the real thing that, you know, anybody who's kind of got through this crisis and has managed to do it is making sure you survived. And clearly it would have been very hard to raise funds, you know, probably in, you know, last summer until it became clear, perhaps actually the economic side, you can sort of see a, a road to recovery. So, yes, yeah, so, I, mean, I think it was definitely hard, but I actually sort of also enjoyed it. And I actually felt that it kind of elevated my own position, I think, in the company. I was more confident, in fairness, in the fact I now understand payments. You know, two years ago when I joined, I knew nothing about payments and I've had to, I've had to learn loads. So I, I kind of understood the dynamics around the business more, too. But also, I think that, you know, having that sense of reality imposed, actually, I think is probably a good thing. Because I think, you know, realising that these things can happen and there can be a sudden shock means you've always got to be in control of things and costs that it's not just about, you know, you can't just spend prolifically forever and you do need a way of managing your, your cost base as you move forward. Obviously, as a you're a hyper growth business growing internationally, and of course, as you're going through fundraising round, the investors are buying into that growth. So very often the focus is on the top line, but the pandemic for a period switched that. And at the time, of course, many predicted, and I think you also commented on it, that that, that cost control, there would almost be a shift in behaviour and the mindset of many CFOs like you. Has that endured or actually has it reshifted and it's returning to growth once again, where it's just all about the top line? Yeah, it's a very good question, actually. I, I actually think, you know, there is a little bit or lots of hype around and there's probably is a lot of like, you know, the key thing is all about growth. And actually controlling your spend is, you know, is perhaps losing priority very quickly. Now, what I would say, though, is I felt the one thing the pandemic gave me about our specific business is I could see that if I need to make Ocadas profitable, I can do that. Because it was very clear that we could have carried on the trajectory where we'd grow smart slower than we're growing today but we wouldn't invest as much, you would get the business to profitability. And it was really clear that, that, that we were on that progression. You know, we got losses down to a million a month and we were clearly on the way to kind of reducing that and we would have made, you know, get to a point of making money because the growth was still sufficient to out, sort of outpace the, the cost increases. We're not doing that. We're investing uh, in lots of new and exciting things, which I, I genuinely believe in. But I think one of the things that I definitely haven't sort of stepped back from is the need for us to have controls and processes in place that allow us to control spend too. And I do believe that, yes, we need to hire people. And yes, at some level, you know, salaries are kind of out of control because you pay in market rate and it's very difficult not to do that. But on other costs, I do like to think that we have probably got more discipline in the business, thinking around the edge and thinking about as well. And I think where we've got better as well is understanding the need to kind of look at the financial returns from investments that we're making there was a you know go callous was a little bit in the world of before i joined where you know we'll spend we believe it's going to be fine and and etc whereas now i think we've got a lot better a lot better data on understanding the sort of returns that we expect to get and then either do or don't from things that we're investing in i think a lot of that discipline is understood to be way more important now than it was and i think i've got much more buy-in from the rest of the organization 
around looking at things like returns and ROI and, and such like it and really understand the importance of those. And as you said, putting the people to one side because the market dictates what you want, what you have to pay people if you want the best talent in your respective location. How do you then approach that management of spend in a way that doesn't impinge that growth that you're trying to invest in? Because it's a very delicate balance, isn't it? Too much control can lead to like a slowdown, which then restricts growth. So how do you approach that? You've genuinely got to sort of step back and think about what risk are you taking in the business? So, you know, how risky do I think these investment plans are? But what I have always got in the back of my mind is what's my plan B? I don't necessarily discuss that plan B with anybody else, but in my head. But I know that I'm kind of tracking things sufficiently to know, okay, if we, if I see this deviation from the revenue line in some way, or some, it's clear we're not getting the returns from that thing we've invested in over here. Whatever the, I've got all these things trigger in mind in my head. They're literally in my head. Probably one of my other failings. I'm not very good at writing anything down. It's all up here. But I have these things going on and I am thinking about them the whole time. I mean, I'm constantly assessing kind of, okay, where is our spend? What have I got my head count to? If I break it today and I say we can't hire anybody else, you know, how does that transpire? Does that leave us enough runway from a cash we've got on the balance sheet to take the business? And and those are the things I'm working at. It's obviously calculated risk because things can go, you know, badly wrong. You know, you've got, there's always a temptation to keep chasing after a goal as well uh, rather than but I've always been a massive believer and I the one and only reason we were successful was because we weren't afraid to change our minds you know and, and all my time into it this was not just me but the management team as a whole and we probably got you know some of our employees sort of probably didn't like that fact that we did change our mind a lot but in all honesty that is the reason why we managed to do what we did because we realized once we'd realized we made a bad decision we said, all right, this was wrong. So let's do something different. And I actually think it's massively important to be that way and to not just keep chasing after something. You know, it's then again is a balance between having, you know, belief in what your strategy is and belief on execution on that strategy. You know, and I think Hiroki's very good at that as well. He's not afraid to say when things aren't working, we need to do something different. And that is super, super important. And I believe in any successful business. That's such a delicate balance though, but, you know, having the flexibility Sometimes you can feel the pressure that even if you suspect it's a bad decision, there's almost like a group pressure to maintain the objective or that you set out because, you know, the whole organization is pushing towards that. And of course, in, in financial planning, you set a budget, you set a goal, and then, it's, and then everyone is trying to coalesce together to achieve that goal. So how do you then strike that balance between maintaining the flexibility to change your mind, change the plan, but then giving people a firm plan and a firm goal that they think won't change in a way because otherwise they might not put their all behind achieving the goal. Yeah, and I think it, it's actually through constant communication. That's what I think. So I think you you kind of like need to be constantly talking both to leadership teams, but also to the wider organisation. You know, we were very, very open with our sort of dilemmas that we went through as we did our COVID plan at GoCavos. You know, we're very clear that what the things we're thinking about so I think you, you're doing that. And you, you, the key is like you need to have sort of key metrics that you know are going to kind of put you point towards success or failure and certain and people to be aware of those things. But also people to know that it's OK to fail. It's OK to take a bet, to put some money behind something and it to be not to work, because quite often you learn from those mistakes. So you kind of got to have that con- culture embedded in the organization as well. But I think it's I think it's important not to create that overall vision, not sort of to necessarily change the overall vision, 
And I think both interview and go cabas are very similar in that even though we sometimes change the path that we get into, that goal which we had at interview, which was to be, you know, ultimately, you know, the sort of at least the one of the top two alternative telecoms providers in Europe and to build a very successful sort of B2B IT business, we achieve both of those things ultimately. You know, go careless, it's always been as about as focusing on recurring payments and being about bank to bank. We're not changing any of that, even though we sort of sort of tweak at some of our strategies and some of our ideas to say, yes, we're going to do this, no, we're going to do that. So I think having the clear vision of where you're trying to get to and probably not sort of changing that very often, I think is very important, but not being afraid to change the decisions you're making on the way of how you're going to get there. Because sometimes, you know, you'd realise actually that bit of the business, we should have focused more on, we've lost focus on it, we need to reinvest there because actually it's doing really well. And you can see these things that come through and, and you've just got to be willing to do that. And I think anybody who works in fast growth environments has got to embrace change. I mean, you cannot be successful if you want a steady life. I mean, it, it just doesn't work that way. So I think you, you people probably are embedded behind that. And I think so long as you're communicating the fact that you're sort of doing something on this premise, if that premise doesn't work out, you may have to change your mind. I think you generally get buy-in and people get behind what you're trying to do. Within that communication, again, the the delicate balance to be struck is one where you can only reveal a certain amount say to certain teams or if it's sensitive information or you know budget or so on but at the same time the more open you are the more people buy in the, the more sincerity and trust there is so again as a as a cfo that is such a tricky thing to get right so how do you approach that so interestingly, as a private company it's much easier than a public in truth and both organizations have been pretty transparent with what we communicated out to wider employer bases, I've always been incredibly transparent with my senior management team because I've always felt that's the right way to to do and to run a business. And Goldcallus is is very, very open about its financial information to employees. And it's sort of what the way we do that is by almost having kind of a contract with them that says, you know, we trust you. We trust you enough to share this information. We therefore expect you to treat it with the sensitivity that it requires. So obviously, we, you know, there's things like employee salaries and things that are all, you know, all protected. But the car, you know, the car stats and the car drivers, we definitely do not, you know, sort of shy away from disclosing that. And that also means that people can see how things are going. And therefore, you know, they, it helps them to understand decisions a lot more if you do make them because they'll see, oh, okay, yes, something quite isn't quite working as well as it, the other places and so are the other the reason is I that whatever it is and, and I think therefore it, that just makes when you are changing your mind it makes that sort of process much easier. You mentioned something earlier on it was actually in a way sad to hear that when you first became CFO the things that you that maybe you were most concerned about were attributes that had nothing to do with your competency so the fact that you were you said a female blonde northern and you also spoke elsewhere about the when you started, you could see as someone who was moving into finance and moving upwards that there weren't many role models and there weren't many female leaders. Is that something that you have seen change over your time uh, as CFO? And if not, what do you think needs to be done to stimulate um, greater diversity, particularly within finance? So I think in finance, we, we're making big strides, in all honesty. I come across, you know, incredibly capable female CFOs now, RFDs, you know, all the time. That just didn't happen 20 years ago. You know, I mean, I'm still quite often, you know, I will still be in the minority in a lot of situations that I'm, I'm in. But that's probably partly as well the industry, you know, it's fintech, maybe kind of less attractive to 
kind of you know either sort of all all women or whatever in some ways but definitely is, is changing for the better I think finance as a whole you know we're 50 50 as a as an organization it's still obviously there is still not enough diversity on the vast majority of management teams that's out there but compared to where we were 10 20 years ago I mean it, it's huge change and I think you know one of the things I do speak a lot about too you know when I'm talking to either female audiences or either you know sort of a completely diverse audience you know, one of the things that changes, in in my opinion, is, you know, the, the reason there is a glass ceiling, that, or certainly there was, there was a sort of something that, you know, women were perceived not to be good enough to do this well or, or whatever. And I, you know, still sort of felt I came across sexism, even in, you know, as recent as probably five, six, seven years ago. But um, I do think that is changing a lot and certainly changing in the younger generations and in sort of more new tech style businesses. I think people don't really think about it. But also, I think, you know, what's massively important is the way that we're all approaching the change to running the family at home. You know, it's no longer seen to be just the woman's role, you know, which is an amazing step forward. I mean, I have only been successful because I've got an incredible husband who's supported me through, you know, my entire career and has always shared the responsibility with our, of our girls with me equally. And, uh, you know, that is a big, big part of why I've been able to juggle both, you know, family and, and career. But the fact now that it's, you know, I support all my guys to take their paternity leave, you know, because we're quite generous with that. It's fine if you want to ask to work four days, just as it's fine for a woman to ask to work four days. And I think as that changes, you know, a lot of that, you know, will help and, and mean that, you know, gender becomes almost irrelevant as everything should be relevant, you know, gender, race, whatever it is, because, you know, diversity definitely brings a huge amounts to management teams and, and to businesses. I mean, I saw that interview and honestly, a lot with like sort of different cultures because we ran a European business. We'd got people spread across Europe on our management team and that diversity happened, helped massively. And I know, and I see that also at GoCalvers because you just get different opinions. And I'm very sure that businesses are way more successful today than potentially they were, you know, say 30 years ago because you've just got a different breadth of thinking, you know, across the piece. So I think that, you know, again, something that I feel really strongly about, that it's good to have different opinions because that's how you get to kind of consensus because you challenge each other. And that's how you get to better decisions because a decision that's not challenged tends to be a wrong one because one of the reasons why it's a good decision is because you're able to respond to that challenge. And it's so important that you get those different opinions, you know, from, from a, a broad management team. I find it fascinating that even obviously amongst the many interventions that you as a leader and your company can perform, that you highlight ones that in the case of gender, that are actually a bit more supporting men to be active parents, because then that has a, a balancing effect on, you know, society or the community as well. Yeah, definitely. And I tell you, my I've got two girls and, you know, my girls are absolutely nothing like either me or my husband. <laughs> and both one of them wants to be a, a professional footballer, the other one's at a performing arts school. Not entirely how sure how we kind of have, have made these two two girls, but they're also just not, you know. But, but what I think is great when I see them is they actually don't. They think, you know, Sophie thinks she can be a footballer. You know, she's not sat there thinking she can't. You know, and and that is such a change that's happened. And both of them feel that yes, of course I can do any job. I can be a policeman, or I can be a pilot, or I can be, you know, whatever it is. And I think this, that that is definitely changing all the time. It's still out there. You still get like, you know, we've seen the horrible things in the press with the, the racism in the football, which I just cannot, you know, I just don't understand. You see it still with sexism. I know like, you know, my daughter did who was a footballer, had some comment made by some boy at school. And it's, so it's still out there, but there are changes that are, are all for the positive. And I try and focus on the positive 
and the fact that we have made huge strides, the fact that I'm sat where I am, not just from a, a gender perspective, but also from a background perspective. You know, as I said, I, my grandparents were minors. You know, I have no, you know, nothing, you know, in my history that in any way says I should have got to where I've got to where I'll have. But I, I did because I was given the opportunity and I, I obviously stepped up to that. So, you know, I, I try and focus on those positives and try and, and also try not to worry too much about the situation that you're thrown in. Much easier to do when you're 47 than when I was 27, for sure. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like those things that you learn and, and help. And look, you know, the world is such a better place for diversity. I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive, massive believer in that. You touched on the idea of that when you have diversity in the team, that you can get more vibrant, more balanced debates, conversations, which ultimately leads to better decisions. Is that an idea that you feed into how you build your teams and how you hire and how you look out, seek new talent, rather than just figure out a role and end up being in a way victim to whatever the talent pool is? Do you think about the diversity as you're actually defining that role and building out your team? Definitely. I think I hope I've got a pretty diverse team across the piece, but nobody is in my mould. And I think that's super important too, because there'd be no point in me hiring somebody who's like me, because I'm me and I do what I do. So I hire people that complement me and hopefully I can help to train them. You know, maybe I see there's one of my team who I think has got a lot of my attributes who I could see, you know, you know, well, I mean, there's half of them potentially could be a CFO, frankly, but, you know, there's a lot of talent there and I help to develop it, but everybody is a little bit different. And I think it's so important that you get that, you know, we all come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some of us, we've got some now, some payments backgrounds, but a lot of us come from non-financial services my team was very balanced of people that have worked with me for you know 10 15 years and those that kind of uh, have joined me since I joined our catalyst and I really encourage that challenge they all know they can push back on me I mean I I, I might push back equally and I'm pretty you know I have I have my opinions and I'm quite strong at them sometimes but uh, they also know they can tell me when they think I'm wrong um and I sometimes of course I am everybody's wrong and we all only you know I definitely learn more and I've learned more from mistakes than I've learned from my successes 100% and therefore you know that sometimes yeah if I'm wrong I need to be told you know by my team and I respect their opinions hugely I ask their opinions on things if there's something I'm not sure about I get some of them to look at my work and to check it and to say okay do you think this is right have I phrased this right or, and I really value them and as I said the absolute only reason I am able to do what I do is because of the amazing team I've got believe me. And with that in mind, for people maybe within your team or, or other teams who like would aspire to emulate your path, become a CFO, what advice would you have for them, regardless of which path they're taking, whether it's similar to yours via FP&A or whether it's one of the other routes, what would your advice to them be? There's a few things. I think one, don't be scared of taking on the opportunity. Really understand that businesses are only successful if they take risks. So you cannot come into a CFO role or a senior finance role purely thinking, I don't want any risk here. I'm too scared to do that. You've got to be able to make some leaps of faith and, and have the confidence to do that. But you know what? You've got to enjoy it. You've got to love it, you know, because it's hard work sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes it can get frustrating and sometimes you can end up in endless conversations and, you know, it can, you know, go through budgets and, you, you know, everybody's working really hard and it can get tense and, you know, but you've got to really love I think anyway, you've got to really love what you do. And I've been so lucky, I say, in my life to, I love my job. I've always loved my job. Um, I work because I choose to work. I'm, you know, in a very privileged position now that that's, you know, is a choice. But it's something that just, for me, you know, I cannot imagine a life where I, I went to work every day and not enjoy it. And I think 
you know, it's a really, so it's about, you know, the fact you want to find the right team to work with as well, because that's super important. I would have been dreadful in some businesses. I would not have worked at all. And I know that, you know, there's definitely people I would have clashed with too much. I'd have been too opinionated. I'd have been too direct because I have some of those northern traits as well, which make me that way. You know, so I know there's certain circumstances I would not necessarily have been successful in. So I think it is also making sure you fit, find right in your environment. And actually the products of your business being something you believe in too. I always felt that interview we had something we could, you know, could build on and be successful at. I definitely feel like Carlos. I mean, I think our product is phenomenal. I think what we are trying to do in health businesses really makes an awful lot of sense. So I think also having that self-belief in what your overall business is trying to achieve is massively important. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Some amazing insights. For anyone that wants to uh, connect with you or, or follow you online, where, where should our listeners do that? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm not very good on other social media. I'm a little <laughs> bit old, but, <laughs> but I am on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, feel free. I'm always happy to kind of, you know, connect with people and also kind of offer advice um, if I can and be helpful to people because, you know, sort of encouraging every, you know, younger generation and kind of hoping, you know, more and more people, you know, I think in the UK, we've got a massive opportunity, honestly, to build incredibly successful technology businesses. And I am all for trying to get as many people and many communities, you know, from very different backgrounds into learning and working out how to do that. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.